This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams and welcome to the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. James Bardolph. James is someone who wears many hats. He's deeply involved in the world of esports, both as a gamer and as an organizer and as a commentator. Um, and he has a lot of other interests. But uh, without any more ado, James, welcome. Thank you. It's a, a pleasure to, to be here. And this is one of my favorite podcasts to listen to, as I think this is like the industry podcast as far as the uh, the watch industry is concerned. So I appreciate that you're putting me on here as well. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, when I first started Superlative, my intention was to have a show that profiled the personalities of the important people in the industry. And who are those people? It's the people that make watches, the people that sell watches, the people that um, design watches, and of course, some of the people that like watches and involve them in their world and, and also um, are focused on, on how to market them and how to spread them. I think one of the bigger contexts of this conversation is this world of esports. And for people that don't know what that means, it's essentially um, taking competitive video games and creating a sort of sports casting environment around that. You have competitions, you have fans, you have players, you have you know a lot of the sort of structure that traditional sports have, but in sort of um, an environment of games. How would you further clarify sort of what esports is? Because I think to me, it's still a little bit of a, a moving target and ambiguous concept. Sure. Some people will call it e-gaming. Uh, never say that. It just shows uh, the lack of experience there. But esports is essentially competitive gaming. I think esports is the more palatable way, fewer syllables um, way to say it. So esports is essentially electronic sports. And it's, you know, sports is the easiest comparison, but it's essentially competitive video games. So that can be two teams playing a tactical shooter against each other. They'll be salaried by organizations. They'll play either in a league or a tournament for prize money and so on. So it's skill-based computer games, essentially. Now, let's put some numbers into the context here because I... You know how big it is. I have a little bit less of an understanding of how big it is, but I think so many people out there, especially people that have are in the in the, in the watch industry, the luxury industry, that you know sort aren't maybe gamers themselves or you know uh, knowing exactly what the kids are doing. Help explain maybe in terms of both population, viewership, maybe money. How big is esports today, circa twenty twenty two? So if we look at the company I work for. They recently went for a merger. So their ESL FACIT group used to be separate companies. Um, there are some others like DreamHack as well, um, who's a big festival operator. So we do big tours of a lot of, a lot of the biggest titles in the space. By titles, I mean games. So there may be, like if, you t if we take Counter-Strike as one game as an example, Counter-Strike within our ecosystem, and there are other ecosystems as well, but within our one, which is easily the largest one, we have a global tour um, that goes around the world of massive stops where there are there are big events in stadiums which thousands, 10,000 plus people for the largest ones will turn up to lots of engagement on live events. They'll have their favorite teams. They'll be wearing the jerseys. It's like a football game, but it's it's video games instead, essentially. So it's absolutely huge. So some some quick numbers for you, for example, the the, pla the online platform we have where people go to play to win prizes and so on alongside playing in a competitive environment. We have about 27 million users 
uh, registered users on our platform. That, and they spend an average of about 150 minutes a day uh, on the platform, which is more than pr- practically any social media platform. In terms of the fans or, of this ecosystem of esports, we're talking about over 150 million people. So that's, again, I think important to say, uh, huge numbers of people, but you're talking about the popularity of not just one game, but one sort of tournament or one type of series of one, ga- one game. There are many games. There are publishers and developers everywhere trying to make new games. And the lifespan of the games that are these competitive games are much longer than maybe if you think of a title that, that goes out on a console is meant to be sold for you know a couple of years. I mean, this, the support behind these games is huge. And you know there are a lot of fans around the world. One question I don't know is how does esports in terms of you know, viewership and fandom compared to the world of traditional sports. Because the watch industry understands, you know, uh, soccer and they understand football and baseball uh, and, and, you know, golf and, and polo and, and even some of these esoteric, you know, traditional sports. They get that. Does the esports world have the same types of numbers these days? Is it still trailing? Or maybe esports has more numbers than traditional sports these days. Do you know anything about that? So there's concurrent viewers. And then there's overall viewership as people will come and go. Like, for example, it depends It depends on the kind of game. Some grand finals can take a number of hours to complete, for example. And that's, of course, where you're going to get your, your your big numbers from. But so for the largest events, let's let's take the, the Counter-Strike Majors, for example. There's a few diamonds in esports, if you will. You've mentioned League of Legends before on one of your podcasts. Um, Counter-Strike would be another one. And obviously, I work in the Counter-Strike space. So... We um, we've done some shows with Turner Sports before, and they we had a series which was on TV, but the the majors were primarily online, and we would have a concurrent of one point one to one point two million viewers. But if you're talking about overall numbers, like if you if you had a campaign, be it um, a tournament that took two weeks to to play out, started in a studio, finished in a stadium, or if you had a a longer series like a league, then you're you're talking uh, way way bigger numbers. So uh, I'll try and pull some up for you quickly, but you you might be talking tens of millions there. It's 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 quite colossal um, because it's a worldwide audience. Look, if you're looking at TV, for example, I guess you might just have uh, the US, for example, but you can cover obviously various markets at the same time. So the um, the numbers go up exponentially. Yeah, I'm you know I'm just trying to set some foundational stuff here for a lot of the audience because I like to bring people into new worlds and I get for a lot of people, esports and competitive gaming are maybe something they've heard about, but if they haven't actually delved in it, it's very difficult to sort of imagine it. It's an interesting space. It's got its own characteristics, its own character, its own flavor. It's unbelievably deep. And I think a lot of it comes from the games themselves. I mean, I grew up as a gamer and one of the things I find interesting is these games just get increasingly nuanced. And the amount of games today that you can just sort of pick up and play without a very steep le- learning curve is, is quite low. You know, like these are these are intimidating things to get into and people don't understand that it's not just like a simple video game. Like there's, these are complicated things that require uh, intelligence, practice, and a lot of physical skill. Um, you know, I remember things were being measured in, in uh, you know, keyboard actions per second or clicks per second or something like that. I mean, uh, you know, it's similar to other sports, you know, that what, what, what is the retirement age of like an esports gamer, like 25? You, you've obviously gone a lot longer in it, but, you know, it, help, help out some more context of what I'm talking about there. All right. So it, 
it's quite interesting, like a, the spectacle, like the demonstration of skill in terms of someone's hand-eye coordination, but also their depth of knowledge and experience. You have to be able to go through similar scenarios time and time again to understand, okay, maybe I should have done the things this way, maybe I should have done things that way. So it's a different combination. But I'd say um, you might see players roll in and roll out as they head towards the 30 age, but there isn't necessarily a, a retirement age. I think it depends on on how often you're playing because I feel like to some degree, like, like Counter-Strike is very saturated, for example. So these guys are playing so many matches against each other. When you go up against a particular player on a team and you know he likes to play this way in a certain style and so on, then I feel like how often he might be playing, you know, his habits will be exhausted. They'll have, these teams have coaches to analyze people's habits and exploit them and so on. But I would say people are finding it harder to stay on top teams when they're getting to, let's say, the the age of about 28, then things might get a little more difficult for them. But re- retirement, I wouldn't say it's like, it isn't necessarily like uh, in traditional sports where your, your body's breaking down because a lot of a lot of the wisdom and how you choose to to take a fight, if you can determine where it takes place or how it takes place, can have a part to play in that. So obviously your your reaction times may go down. And we've got some like 17 year old kids are coming through and they their their reaction time is really completely outrageous but there's there's a balance it's, it's a, a bit more complicated in that because if you can out strategize someone again it depends on the type of game you're playing as well if you're playing a shooter and somebody wide swings you and pops you in the head then there's there's not so much you can do but if you're playing a game like a like a league of legends for example then it's a it's a different it requires a slightly different set of skills so there isn't like a, a line where we cross and say, okay, if you're beyond this age, then then you're donezo. So it depends on the genre you're playing. If you're if you're playing a shooter, then it you know it, it might depend on the type of role you play on a team as well. If you're going to be the guy trying to get what we call an entry frag, like you're the point man who's going to try and force a way into a bomb site, for example, you could be that guy. You can be the guy in the background who's who's uh, throwing utility instead. So so there's there are different ways you can try and hold on for longer. But I'd say you start to see a bit of change in rosters at the age of about 28. That makes sense. Now, let's go more to the business side for a minute. Again, I'm trying to make it as relevant as possible for a lot of the listenership. You know, and, and they understand the traditional sports where they see sponsors, stadiums are sponsored, teams are sponsored, players are sponsored, entire games and sports are, are sponsored and, and supported. How does the world of sponsorship and marketing work in the esports world? This is similar. It just has its own flavor. Uh, are, are there differences? Um, you know, help explain to people, you know, where the money comes from in the world of esports, how things are monetized and, and how sponsors um, are integrated that in ways that are similar, maybe different than you know traditional sports. All right. So to give you uh, a baseline of one of the recent big events we had in the Counter Strike space, as an example, one of the um, the major tournaments we had last year, which culminated in in Sweden, had a peak viewership of two point seven million. The they were broadcasting the whole event was broadcast for about seventy hours. Um, sorry, for about 120 hours, and it had 71 million hours watched and an average viewership of 600,000 people. So there are some numbers people can go and crunch at home. Now, if you if you think of who's watching these events, it's going to be people who are who are playing games in their houses. Not a lot of these, not every game, but a lot of these games are going to be, let's say, a on a PC, for example. So if you're if you're on a PC, then 
all the people who are using those PCs are are watching these events. So like Intel, for example, is a humongous sponsor. They're one of the key sponsors in the space um, because obviously they've, they've got a big, big competitive uh, competitor in in AMD. So Intel is one of the one of the big people in the space. If you have peripherals for PCs like gaming headsets, gaming chairs, even uh, Herman Miller have slightly redesigned some of their chairs to have gaming versions of them, like the Embody chair, for example. Herman Miller have a, a gaming partnership with Logitech where they... It's the chair I'm sitting in right now. <laughs> oh, there we go. Clearly you're a gamer <laughs> as well. So I'm, I'm sitting on an Aeron, which uh, nothing to do with the gaming. Um, go used... Herman Miller. Exactly. Sorry, go on. Yeah, props to Herman Miller. <laughs> I, I've got, I'm using a Herman Miller chair as well. I had to pay for all of that though, sadly. But that's one example of, I would say, a non-endemic sponsor which has come into the space but your typical ones might be uh, like a logitech a, a HyperX, and any anything around gaming physically like in your home would be would be the immediate ones like mouse pads mice gaming keyboards gaming headsets faster refresh rates uh, monitors samsung are doing some outrageously enormous super wide monitors which can be used for like sim racing which is quite serious as well so those would be your 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 initial line of sponsors would be your endemic sponsors. Then you have your non-endemic sponsors because there's a lot of crossover. If you think about a demographic like 18 to to 34 uh, is a very strong one. These these are people who you know in previous generations used to be around a television, and that and that simply isn't how the uh, a, a lot of family households work anymore. So a lot of that demographic is is within this space. So there's lots of crossovers like streetwear. For example, be it streetwear or just general wear. So, like we see, uh, Gucci recently came into the space, and th- th- that's one huge brand which I think is a watershed moment for certain games, especially Counter Strike. So, for example, they had previously done collaborations. You know, collaborations are huge, um, just in general at the moment, especially with fashion. We're seeing it all over the place. They did with a, there's a team called 100 Thieves. They did a, a collab. They collaborated with them on a bag. They did a special bag, which they released. They did a collaboration with Fnatic on what I would describe as more a, a fashion-oriented watch with big logos and so on on it. But they they partnered with us before our merger with Facein. And um, rather than collaborate on a product, there is no product. They're not selling anything. We, we've done a partnership with them where we make an academy for up-and-coming players where... We, we will put them on a contract for about three months. We'll give them some funding so they, you know, they've got some money while they concentrate on trying to make a career as a professional gamer. And we'll give them coaching. We've, we've given them mentors, mental health, um, general health and well-being, professional players and so on. So, and that's, that, that's a very recent thing. There's a trailer on Gucci's YouTube that we made just, just for this. So again, that, that's a very big watershed moment where rather than, uh, flash in the pan, here is a product and goodbye. There's a, a longer-term commitment from a, a company like Gucci into the gaming space. So the non-endemic ones, are, are, I mean, they've always been coming through, like Red Bull, for example, is another one which is pretty big in the space and you know very keen to... Right. Okay, no, that's interesting. I want to mention something that I think is important that uh, hopefully you'll agree with or maybe have a difference of opinion. Um, and this is sort of segueing into the conversation about how, you know, luxury watch brands can, can be in part of this. But I want to say that 
flashiness, and I know that's a term that can mean multiple things, and maybe you'll have a different term. Flashiness is such a key part of the world of competitive games, not just in the players, but in the games themselves, um, showing off, whether it's through the way your character looks or the way your character acts, is such a key part of it. And while it's not sort of the most couth way of talking about why you want a luxury timepiece, a lot of people, especially younger people, enjoy the idea of it being a status symbol, i.e. being flashy. So in your opinion, how important is flashiness to the world of esports? Because to me, it's a huge part of it. I think that a lot of these games have, they allow opportunities for you to show your individuality. So if we take Counter-Strike, for example, um, the game has different skins for different weapons, which have different rarities. So some of the nicer ones are harder to get hold of. And you can, you can trade on the market. And, um, you know, I've, I've been playing this game since the, the first day it came out. So I have uh, a lot of the, the, the rarer stuff. And I think our game's an extreme example where things went a bit crazy. Like there were some teams who were banned indefinitely for doing things they shouldn't be doing. So let's say they had some, some stickers in the game. Those stickers became extremely finite because there's few of them and you'll be familiar with this. There's not many of them. They're very valuable. Their value goes up over time. People use them. There's less of them and so on. So the, the skin economy in general is absolutely crazy. People will spend a lot of money. I'm talking tens of thousands of dollars just to, I mean, different cultures, you know, have different things. Like some cultures will want something that's rare to, as, a, as a symbol of status, essentially. So there's something for everyone in that respect. Some people just want to have some nice color coordination and so on. Like I, on my uh, aggressor side, all my inventory is themed in green. On my defending side, it's themed in red. So there's a lot of individuality you can have with that. And I, and I think it's fun to, to move things around. But of course, flashiness for sure. If someone can show something shiny that belongs to them and maybe not everybody else has that, there's a feel-good factor in that for sure. Well, I think that the simple point is that because showing individuality and showing off to a degree is such an integral part, it makes sense that a watch brand would market, hey, our product does this for you. And, you know, and it's sort of a silly concept, but, you know, I love the idea of the fact that you could have the watch and then your character could have, you know, like a digital version of the watch. Like when you buy the watch, it also comes with a skin or, you know, or whatever, for whatever game it is. But the fact that your character could wear it, you know, I, I know that sounds kind of silly to some people, but, you know, explain how the appeal of a luxury watch actually fits very well into, I guess, the mentality of, of a lot of this world. Yeah, well, there's digital and there's there's physical. So I, I have actually spoken to one smaller watch brand and uh, given them some intros to different developers as they were interested in in getting their watch in a game. And um, I, I know that has happened in some non-esports titles before. But um, you know, there there are some like some of the uh, aggressor models have got like Invicta-esque, like cheap gold watches on and so on, which is quite fascinating. But, you know, in a tactical shooter, it's kind of a no-brainer. And I think it's it's really interesting. It can be really interesting um, to for people who like to nerd out on things. Like if you look at World of Tanks, for example, which is a game where you're driving tanks around basically and fighting other people in tanks, they have a historian employed full-time for, for historical accuracy, on the tanks they put into the game and so on. So there, there are a lot of people who kind of appreciate this kind of thing or how the different 
weapons in a game sound or so on. So there is a lot of enthusiasm for nuance for sure. And there there definitely is a market for people to to have proper representation in watches, which I think is almost non-existent at the moment. So there's it's definitely there to be saturated. But I think I think the um the prospect of of physical watches is even more appetizing to people. Like I talk to people a lot on Twitter about watches because I'm a I'm a big watch nut myself. So I have a lot of people uh, DMing me at different at different prices, d- looking for watches in general. So I think I think while while digital watches there is something to be done there, and there's certainly collaborations. I think the the physical side of things is uh, is the the big slice of the pie. Well, I think the question is from a marketing strategic standpoint. Let's say you're a watch brand and you say, okay, I want to involve myself in the world of esports. I'm sold on it. I think it's a good idea. But then comes the questions of how. And, you know, people will learn about real world things in on the internet as opposed to vice versa. So maybe the way that they develop a relationship with the product, its style, is in-game. And that serves as a marketing strategy to get the real person interested in, in real life. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm getting more advanced with it. And I'm, I'm actually making a presumption that the future of esports has a lot of luxury watch interest. Like probably because of the reasons we're talking about, more than one watch brand is eventually going to realize like, oh, this is a great area for, for us. So right now I'm sort of like trying to fantasize a little bit about some of the best practices or possibilities of what brands can do. Because like, yeah, they can slap their brand logo in game, but I don't know if that's going to be effective as having an actual experience, you know, or, or maybe it's just your watch is the, is, is the prize at a competition. That's a popular one. You know, what, what do you think? Yeah, yeah. I think there are definitely advanced activations you can do. So I, I don't think anybody should be considering doing some surface level stuff like this, this is brought to you by X. I mean, you could do a tour where you're, for example, the official timekeeper, that's an easy one. But let's say there was a big event coming in the middle of next year. Um, Let's say it is in London, for example, you could easily do something where you spoke to a developer slash organizer as a lot of the time these are done third party. Um, but they work together. They're given a license by the developer of the game. So let's say you, the game was releasing a new set of, let's say, counter-terrorist models like SAS-type people. You could have, if we take G-Shock as an example, um, you could take a G-Shock that you custom designed and it went into the game like it was announced it was going to be in the game a week after the event's over or it's going to be in the game. It'll probably be after the event, just so there's no uh, bugs no one's expecting. So let's say it's released in the game a week afterwards, but if you're at the event, there are 200 of this watch, and you can you can buy it at the event. That's like, you have proper like, you have proper activation where you're engaging live users, and you get a lot more out of that. And and people might might flip those. We have, we even have um, like hype mice for example which are released and there might be a partnership with a with a player and it may be very limited in supply and people will do whatever they can to buy them and then flip them for like three times the price if 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 that's what they want to do you know it's a free country and all that so i I think uh, i think something where you you pair a digital release with a live activation at an event to engage people and if it's a tour you could you could even do different versions of it for different places, different countries. There's so much you can right. do in terms of themes. So I think there's so a, many things. Lots of a lot of possibility there. 
Okay, I'm going to go off topic a little bit, but it's related to this because I'm thinking that to some people, some of this conversation sounds very NFT-ish because you're talking about a digital asset and things like that. And there are there are, you know, some overlaps, but this is this is a very fundamentally different thing. All that we're talking about came around far before the term NFT even existed. Um, but here's the thing that I want to ask you, and this is sort of a little bit science fiction-y, but is there a future where there's some type of standardization between these games? Whereas if you have an asset in one game, it might be able to move into another. And, and I know that sounds a little bit strange, but the, the question's related to sort of the, um, the permanence of these digital assets. I do agree that a digital asset can be as valuable as a physical asset. However, a lot of the times when you spend money in a game, um, it, it, it stays in that game and it's reliant on the lifespan of that game. If the developers decide, hey, we want to stop supporting this game and it goes away, you know, you don't, you have no choice. You can't pull your investment out of that. It's stuck in there. Is there a future where there's some way of pulling your digital investment out of one game world and moving into another? You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, that's that's essentially one of the uh, things that NFTs are, people say are useful for, and they try to sell you the idea of NFTs based on that. I There are definitely different opinions. I don't think so. And I'll explain why in a second. I have zero interest in nfts personally and you know that's that's a personal opinion like other people in a company i work for will, will be doing stuff with nfts but I, just, I have the same personal opinion by the way yeah yeah i i really am not interested with with this NF, nft stuff when i when i saw the um the qr code on on that bulgari watch i was i was like oh dear this is uh not my favorite i did like the watch until i saw that anyway um, it's just personal opinion. So I don't think so. And allow me to explain why or give you at least the status quo. So one of the biggest developers of, well, let's just, let's just, I'll keep it simple. One of the biggest developers of, of games at the moment is Valve. And some might argue they kind of buy companies rather than develop, let's buy the buy. They have a, they have a system called Steam, which is probably the biggest market in the world to buy a game. It came out, uh, a very long time ago. Um, so lots of games, like if you if you think of like a Grand Theft Auto, for example, that's developed by some other people entirely, but they will release it on their platform. It's kind of like someone releasing an app on the iOS system for for Apple. Whereas when that app is sold, Apple will take a quite a chunky cut from that, and they'll make loads of money from it themselves. Steam is basically the equivalent of that. It's the equivalent platform for PC games. So. That's the first thing. Um, and Steam is, it's a market where you buy games, but it's also a community. It was probably, well, it was one of the first of its kind, but it's definitely the biggest. So the guys who make Fortnite, Epic Games, they have made like a rival store. Um, and since they've got basically unlimited money from Fortnite, they will try to compete by, by allowing people to get a game for free, but that's by the by. Steam is like the de facto place that most people will go to to buy games to play games to launch games if i go to if i'm i'm in london right i have an office in in culver city los angeles if i go over to culver city my games are installed here my games are installed there they the the data is in the cloud essentially so i can play the game as long as i'm not playing it in two places at once i can play it no problem so in terms of transferring your 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 items between games um it doesn't. It's not really in the developer's interest, for example. And when I say developer, I mean, I mean the guys who control the market. Because Steam has so many. It doesn't have every game in it because some will be exclusive to try and compete. But it has so many games in the space that 
if they allowed, say, something like an NFT to work in their game, it would just be, they would be competing against themselves. They would just be allowing people to, that's like saying, like, if, I don't know, I, iOS would just allow stuff to go to Android, you know, without regulations from governments and so on. That's so this is different. sort of like the, the gatekeeper issue, how there's a couple of gatekeepers and for better or worse, because they're so powerful, they're going to do things in their interest and that it's in their interest to continue to earn off of, you know, microtransactions and to keep things uh, relatively narrow. And I think that their model is based upon people increasingly spending on these things. And my my feeling, and again, I'd love to hear your thoughts on my feeling is that consumers will reach a threshold point where they're like, I can only spend so much money on games. Because some of these games will cost you a lot of money, like into the thousands really, really fast. And, you know, the consumers will be like, there's just so much I can put in this. And some of those models that are sort of based upon the public spending more and more and more on games might not do as well. I think consumers will be more conscious of value. They'll want to spend. But consumers in all areas, you know, increasingly become conscious of value, especially watches. So, you know, will game consumers be increasingly conscious of value in your opinion? Let me tell you what the situation is today in terms of, in terms of these games with items of value. I have one skin in my inventory for a sniper rifle, which the market value of is about $5,000. So let's wow. say you and I, play. Uh, we both play this game and you would like to have this skin from me. Now, it's kind of outside the TOS, but there's, there's no way you could stop it. So this is just a theoretical scenario. If you gave me five, if you sent me $5,000, however you did it, then I would just send you the skin because you can, you can trade. The thing is like, the, the NFT thing is a, is a solution looking for a problem. People can already exchange their items within the world of, say, a Steam or a different market. And it's, and it's pretty wide. It's a pretty wide, like, you don't really have too many restrictions at the moment. So the, the value is already there. And that depends on the kind of game you're playing. But there's a lot of value. There's a lot, a lot of value. People are, people are buying houses in cash based on um, the stuff they've accrued in, in some of these games. So, so the value is already there. Um, it's it's long been there. I think if you're not part of that world, you might not realize that. But it's the the value is there. I promise you. Now, one of the things that I've also realized about these markets is that the money seems to flow, you know, to the game industry as opposed to back to the gamers. And yes, there are, you know, the com- the competitive world where you can make a living, you can be sponsored, you can earn huge prize money. Um, but you know. These games require people to invest huge amounts of their time. Are there other ways that hobbyists can make money to sort of fund their hobby and their gaming? Or is it really just sort of more one directional and you need to be earning enough money to afford your, uh, your, your, your gaming lifestyle? Well, once, once you've bought the game, it is, it is a sink of time. But if you're enjoying that time, then you know, it's not a, not a bad sink of time uh, necessarily. So... So one part of our company, for example, it's called FaceIt, um, which is a competitive platform. Now, you know, that's kind of ambiguous. It's like having a, a company called Consultia, Consultius. But essentially what a gaming platform, well, what our, what our gaming platform is, is a place where you can go and, and play matches as you could built in in the system. But like, for example, our servers have a higher tick rate, which means there's more information per second. So your shots are more accurate, and so on and so forth. But also... Every every gamer, just by playing matches with other people, they get put into a ladder with a hundred different people each month. And 
they, they're competing against those people on that table. They're not playing against them necessarily, depending on who they're matched with. But there'll be matched with people with, of a similar skill. And they can accrue points each month. And they can use those points in a shop to, to buy different items. And then those might be items for their inventory, which they can do different things with, depending on how much they could actually get a car from that. We've, we've had a car in our shop for a, for a long time as well. So, so that is one way. But I think, I think that the average person isn't necessarily looking to make money from gaming. They're just gaming because it's, it's a culture for them. It's more than a hobby. It really is a culture. So the, I'd say that the average gamer is... You know, some people have just got a bug, the competitive bug, and they just want to compete against people and 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 do better and you know survive against skilled opponents and so on. And, and that in itself is enough. So, um, and a lot of these people will, will be very skilled. They'll be doing tech jobs. They'll be programmers or or plenty of other things. Actually, I've met people from all walks of life. But the average gamer isn't isn't looking to make a profit from gaming. It's if if you're good enough and you, your hobby can become your job, then that's when you you head to the pro level because what better situation is there for you? You know, I, I thank you so much for, you know, chatting with me about some of these details about esports. I guess what I was trying to do is make sure that the listeners who are not familiar with this world understand how deep it is and some of the things that people talk about. Um, let's talk more about some of the other stuff you're into because like, I was just, for example, looking at your uh, Instagram, you know, like bio and like so many of the stuff you were into are like these areas that other watch people are into, like poker, you know, people love watches and poker, and that's another competitive game. Uh, you're you're a diver. I'm also a diver. Obviously, the one of the most ripe area for wristwatches, dive <laughs> yeah. watches. Do you, is is do you basically look for hobbies that you can be a watch guy in? Is that basically <laughs> your strategy? Um, so <laughs> I, you know what, I started um, when I was when I started making a little money in esports. The first, like, I used to buy. I used to buy a Tiso watch. I used to buy a Tiso, like a, a PR, PRC range from Macy's in San Francisco. There was a Street Fighter World Finals there each year, and I'd get flown out for it as the guy who was white labeling their productions in Europe. And somehow, oh, you were doing Street Fighter, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, from 2010, I produced the competitive circuit in Europe for Street Fighter. Um, wow. One way or another, because in like in New York and LA, it was happening, and the players they were getting sponsorships because they had visibility, and we didn't have it here. So I was like, well, let me solve this problem. I'm one of those types of people. So the first like luxury level watch I bought was a, a Breitling Transocean. But when I started working for E League on TBS in Atlanta, I went to the Atlanta Aquarium, and um, there's this. It was built by a billionaire, so it's massive. If you haven't been there, it's one of the best aquariums in the world. And um, they have this giant tank, if you can call it that. Um, and, and it's got whale sharks and manta rays in there. And I saw a sign saying that you could, um, if you're a qualified diver, you could dive in a tank. I'm like, well, damn, how do I get qualified? And I, I, during those weeks, I was doing uh, Monday to Thursday working at Elix. So I had Friday, Saturday, and Sunday off. So, And I, I, and I found um, a place in Kennesaw. There's a quarry which um, there was a, a crane or something. It's a natural spring and it flooded before they could even get the equipment out. So there's lots of interesting stuff to look around at. Um, so I did the online learning and in my three days off, I uh, did my uh, did the first day in the pool, doing all the emer emergency procedures, how to take your jacket off, how to put your mask back on, clear it of water, all that kind of stuff. And I got qualified as a diver and then went diving. That was my, my first dive was in the Georgia Aquarium in Atlanta. And I was like, holy crap, this is actually amazing. <laughs> so that completely changed the way I travel. Um, because 
from then on, whenever I would travel somewhere, if I didn't have something afterwards, I would try and throw in a dive in a place that was easier for me to get to based on where I currently was. And with somebody like Turner Sports, when they book you a flight, they book you maximum flexibility flight. So you think of a normal flight, let's say London to Atlanta might be, I don't know, 800 pounds or something. They'll book like maximum flex so they can change whatever they need, which is way more expensive. And because I think Atlanta might be the most the busiest airport in America or one of them, if, if that's not correct. Basically, flying back from anywhere else is cheaper for them. So I'll be like, um, could you fly me back from Turks and Caicos this time? And they'll be like, yeah, it's way cheaper for us. So I'll take a one-way, go diving there and then fly back. So like my, you know, I have a lot of divers because that whole thing just changed the whole way I travel. And that's like part of my uniform now is a dive watch. So not every watch is a dive watch, but I do have a lot of divers now. It's probably my favorite genre of watch as well. And that's so fantastic that you're able to take, you know, a fringe benefit of your work and make it uh, possible to dive so much. I, I would love to have dived more. I mean, I'm certified, but, you know, there's just the, the, of course, over the pandemic, multiple dives got canceled and things like that. I was I was so disappointed, but um, you have to keep at it. You have to keep practicing things like that. So that's that's so fantastic. And then um, I, I think that's it's sort of one of the modern ways of having a cool job, right? It's difficult to quantify things just in the amount of money you make, but the opportunities it affords you, you know, like I'm, you know, a, a, a professional blogger. I mean, I'm quote unquote, and you know, yes, I get flown around. I don't get paid to go there per se, but I get, you know, my, my travel gets paid to all these exotic places and I get to go and do things that I just wouldn't otherwise do. Um, taking advantage of it is obviously such an important thing. And so it's glad to, glad that you've done that because, you know, traveling, I think it educates you more than pretty much anything else, right? Yeah, but I think it's good to have balance as well for your quality of life because, you know, over the years, some people like after the show will just go to the hotel bar and have a whiskey or something and, and not be really happy on the road. And I think there are, you know, some people might get homesick, but I think there are ways to to have good balance. So a lot of people go, go rock climbing now or like if I'm in LA, I, I do a lot of like, FPV drone flying. So okay. I'm, I'm normally in a field flying drones with goggles on my head um, <laughs> when I'm in Los Angeles. Um, so actually, where I do it is where... Uh, who's Kim Kardashian's dad? What's his name again? He's Orman now. But when he was a dude... Oh, um, Jenner? Bruce. Was it Bruce Jenner? Yeah. So when Bruce was Bruce, he, he used to fly... He, he was keen on uh, remote control helicopters which like, can fly upside down and do all this kind of crazy stuff. But now he's like mad rich. He's Where just got in his LA? own field. I'm in LA. Where? Okay, in the so, Sepulveda Basin? So it is called Paramount Ranch. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it used there, to be a racetrack. Like, and yeah, yeah. Uh, now there's just like an open field there where there's like a just a, a gang. You can turn up and you'll always see the same people there. So he used to fly there. But now he's just, I guess, flies in his own own yard. But there's also, is it is it Van Nuys Airport? There's like a huge... There's a, there's it's, a big it's field near the there. Sepulveda Basin, and it's um, it was done by aerospace engineers, I think, in like the 70s. But they made the Apollo, I think it was Apollo 11 airfield, and Apollo it's an airfield, airfield yes, yes. for for model airplanes, helicopters, and now they have a drone field with some ox obstacles and stuff like that. Yeah, and there's there's some guys there with like remote control RC cars as well, yeah, racing yeah, around. Yeah. yeah, that place is great. Some really I cool take, guys I down take there. my son there. Uh, I can't wait for him to get more into that stuff because I went there as a kid. It's so crazy that I get to like kind of introduce them to the remote controlled stuff, uh, similar to the way I got into it. Drones is in a complete other thing, especially, you know, for people that when you put the headset on, you're looking through the camera in there and it's, 
this weird blend of playing a game and real world stuff. It's thrilling, isn't it? It's it's a lot of fun. Yeah. My my boss got me into that. He was like, hey, we should get into drone racing. I was like, yeah, cool. And I'm I'm kind of just go all in with stuff. So I've spent like ten thousand dollars and I've got loads of drones and all that. I've got a cine lifter to to lift a red komodo and all this kind of crazy stuff. And then he just didn't do it. So didn't did do you any see that Breitling sponsored? I forgot his name. I met him. It was a nice kid. He, they sponsored um, a, a, a drone racer. He was a very good drone racer and they sponsored him. You know, what, what do you think about that? Is that, is that a company thinking forward? Is that step in the right direction or is that kind of blase at this point? So they actually sponsor a drone racing series as well called DCL. Oh, in the series. Yeah. Okay, so, cool. so if you, even in the game, they, some of the gates are like a, a big, like inflatable H and it's a bright yellow and it's got brightlings name on there i think i think that's pretty cool but i do think that when it comes to games i think generally um the watch industries are are thinking of things a bit surface level like you know i mean brightling are big on on aerospace if you will so things are flying let's put our name on it you know like if you look at like dive watches or mil spec watches military watches for example like like the the shooter space is one of the biggest spaces in in gaming and esports and i think that that to me is a, is a no brainer for example i've i previously um i previously polled my my twitter following on i've just i've just sent, told him send me a picture of your watches and uh i i did count at the time and the most popular type of watch this was about 4 years ago the most popular type of watch was actually uh either fossil watches or fossil huh. branded watches because i know they used to do a lot of the or stuff like Michael Kors watches and yeah, and different yeah. things. So that was really popular. But and I, and I think that's partly no disrespect to them, but partly because people didn't know. Like I get a lot of people saying to me, um, you know, what's I've got a budget of like two hundred dollars. What do you think I can I can get for that? And obviously they're not. I don't, I don't know if that's like a dress watch, a field watch, a dive watch. You know, how aggressive do you want your watch to look? But I'll give them right. uh, a bunch of different options. But I think. There's a, there's enthusiasm, but at the same time, like a lack of edu- education. But um, like I've bought, I've bought my friends um, some different watches. Like there was a, a Seiko dive watch that was about two hundred dollars, which I gave to one of my one of my peers who he still wears it when he gets all his uh, steel jewelry out. But yeah, I think like I, I like the Breitling association with drones, but I do think generally speaking. You know, if people like, I know people like will have like their racing watches and be like, okay, let's look at racing games. But the thing is, if you look at the general viewership of different types of games, racing games are tiny. Like they're, they're a very, they're a very niche thing. Super niche. Exactly. But it's comfortable for them because they understand it, right? That's the point. Yeah. 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 That's fair enough. But I think like, you know, there's games like a League of Legends type, um, which, you know, it's like a top down MOBA type thing. I don't play those kinds of games. I'm a I'm a shooter guy, so I I know what makes sense with shooters, and I, there's there's so much you can do with that kind of thing. But the general audience is is enthusiastic about watches, and um, I'm gonna kind of change topic here a little bit because if if we go back to um, if we look at tradi- traditional sports, they have concerns about the average age of their viewer. And the fact that the younger generations aren't really watching on TV, even even some pro wrestling shows, um, their their average age has been like fifty six or something, absolutely crazy. But let's take the Dallas Cowboys for example. 
Um, the Dallas Cowboys bought one of the oldest esports teams in the US called Complexity. They moved them to their to their village. They gave them a state of the art facility, and that's a, that's a common thing that we've seen from a number of uh, different sports teams. David Beckham even has a, an esports team called, called Guild Esports. Um, but like traditional sports are looking at different ways of capturing tomorrow's generation and the dem- demographics and so on. So. A lot of these teams have got heavily invested in the space. And because of that, a lot of players are earning twenty, thirty thousand dollars a month a month for for playing video games. Some guys in Counter-Strike are playing are getting 20, 30k, but also even people who are just streaming and they've got like thousands of subscribers, which is not like following someone on YouTube. People are paying them five dollars a month, which depending on their partnership with Twitch, they might get five dollars of that or 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 two. $2.50. But either way, there's a lot of people earning upwards of like 40, 50K a month just from streaming the games they like to play, which will be competitive games. But all of these guys, I went to a mall in Hollywood. Um, good friends with a, a gaming company called Final Mouse who do those very in demand products. They'll be doing something in December. I'll, I'll let you know about it if you're interested. But cool. They had a lot of players turn up for this event when they released this new mouse and uh, people were taking pictures with them and so on. All of these guys. All have got like Royal Oaks on, Daytonas, all the all the typical Instagram type watches for people with money. All of these players have got that stuff. Submariners, Hulks, all of that stuff. All the players have got these. They won't show them too much, but they're all wearing them. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. You can buy your wristwatches elsewhere, but at the Blog to Watch store, you can celebrate your watch collecting hobby with high quality original products. The Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at Blog to Watch. We also carry some incredible art that will grate on your walls, letting everyone know about your watch collecting enthusiasm. The bespoke yet affordable products which the Blog to Watch store carries have been designed and curated by the Blog to Watch editorial team. We ship internationally and right now are offering free global FedEx priority shipping on every shirt and watch pouch. We add new products all the time, so be sure to check out store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. So let me ask you a question, and this is your opportunity to like tell the brands what you think. Who are the brands that would most immediately do well by participating in one way or another in the, in the world of esports? What I'm trying to ask is, yes, the Rolexes and, and, and Audemars Piguets of the world are popular, but it seems to be that this audience could be educated better. Which are the brands, in your opinion, if they integrate into this world and they shared you know, audiences and values and things like that, which are the ones that would appeal to the, the, the community uh, now? Is it just the popular brands or are there some other brands that, that you think they would really be into? In terms of engaging the audience, I think there are, there are people at different price ranges which could do things in different ways. Let's take a, a G-Shock, for example. I think that's an easy one because they're extremely affordable and extremely indestructible. So if, if, if a G-Shock partnered with uh, a tournament operator, they could do a series where, let's, let's say you do something fun with players where it's like, you know, let's see if the players can destroy this. And I don't know, you throw them in mud or, or do something stupid where 
people at home are enjoying the personality of the player and they're getting to engage in them at the same time. And what they're wearing could be a limited version, let's say has some co-branding with an event that people are attending and so on. That's like, and, and that's something you could potentially throw in a game as well if you have an agreement with the developer. That's like super easy to do. And people going, you know, you, you let people know in advance, all right, this is going to be $200 at the event. Um, if you've got a VIP ticket, you can join a queue or or something like that, revert, reserve your space and then pay when you get there, something like that. That's just easy, very, very easy to do. So something like that, I think is super easy. Even if you had a, you know, you really want to do something with like aviation, the game doesn't have to be an aviation thing. So like a Breitling, I mean, I've, Breitling are putting up some really interesting watches at the moment. Like if the game isn't about if it doesn't have enough planes for you, for example, if, you, if you're if you releasing things relating to like pilot watches, aerospace, then you can do a show where you put someone in the back of a jet fighter, for example. Like there's, there's super easy ways to, to, to engage like that. There are a number of players who, and, and well, there's a number of players, but also uh, some retired pros who have got some of the biggest profiles in the space who are divers, for example. So you could go diving with an with like a an Oris um as as one example. Like go diving with this guy, get talk about the experience, give him those masks where there's like a microphone in there. You know, there's there's something we actually looked at. We did a we did an event at the Hard Rock Hotel in Cancun um one December. And we were looking at doing <laughs> we were going diving and and uh recording underwater and doing this kind of stuff. Um so it's another example that you could do. Um, and you could give, I mean, depending on the event, if you have like a, a destination event like that, then you can give, you can award like the winners of the tournament, something relative like dive watches and so on. So, so it's about the different price points. I think there are, for, for sure, there are viewers as well at the, at the higher price points. Absolutely. I'll get a lot of DMs about those and, and the players are interested as well. And the brand might depend on the different territory. Like we used to do a lot of big stuff in China. Right now that's really hard because of all their crazy lockdowns, but eventually we'll be back there. So it just, there are, it's a very global thing. So you can determine like, if you want to target like the, like a Chinese market or a Middle Eastern market or a, or a, the USA market, for example, then you can say, all right, what events have you got going on in this region? Um, and we might say, okay, we've got something in Dallas. Let's go down to Fort Worth and do something with, with cowboys or the, or the livestock market. You know, there's, there's all kinds of different things you can do. So, so I think there's, it's accessible for different brands. I would say, uh, you know, the, the higher you go, the less accessible it is, but that kind of just works by default. But they're, you know, the demographic is making a lot of money in different regions. But I think, generally speaking, up to like 10k, I think is uh, a no-brainer. Okay, so you're so what I'm hearing is that it's not about any specific brand that would do so well. It's watches that right now primarily, you know, are ten thousand dollars and under. And what's most important is like actual serious engagement with the community. Like it could be any good dive watch brand, but if they sort of like talked about the diving lifestyle and talked about the, you know, the history of dive watches and all the cool things they do and the ways that they can look like that would appeal to the audience. But there's no like, you know, hey, brand X, you got to get in here now because you're losing on sales you could have tomorrow. I think the types like Timex, G-Shock, especially for the younger guys, I think these, I think these brands, I would, I would definitely 
single outs, especially for the accessible things they're doing at the moment. But I think in the grand scheme of things, it's about doing things right more than it is about who you are. You know, there's, there's, there, there are some brands which are ubiquitous. I think like the Moon Swatch has definitely gone be it's gone to the the filthy casuals rather than the hardcore market as well so that is another thing to be to be noted i've had a lot of uh, normies message me about about that so there's that side of it but again i i think it's it's just about doing things properly and and doing things in a way where you're engaging your audience rather than saying this is sponsored by this you know the more effort you put in the more you get out of it Let's clarify on something important here, and that is whether or not the gamers or the fans, whoever, want watches that somehow have to do with the game. You know, the cheesy example is just like one that has like a game, you know, logo on it or a publisher or a team logo or whatever. And then there's weird souvenir watches that look like, you know, the Disney watches that sort of have themes for these worlds. Like, is that the right direction? Or it's like, make the products you do. Maybe once in a while, if there's something really clever, incorporate the game into it. But for the most part, make it be a marketing relationship. Or should they make a bunch of souvenir watches? I, I don't know. What's your opinion? I think both can be good. So if we look at the if we look at the, the watch that G-Shock did with NASA, for example, that that white watch where it had all the um, the like NASA stuff down the strap, that was extremely popular. Right. Like NASA, NASA is a is a brand people are very fond of. Now, if you compare that to, let's say, some of the strongest brands, let's say, if we look at the the biggest brands in North America in esports in terms of teams, one of the ones that stands out immediately are Cloud Nine. They're they're one of the most popular teams of all time, and they're I mean, NA being one giant country, it's one massive market. So. If if you're open to the idea of doing, you know, if there's like a big event in America, you could do something team branded like that. But you could also just have your your normal offerings and focus on engaging the community. So I'm going to tell you one of one of my ideas. If somebody does this, I'll find you. I wouldn't normally do this because it's never a good idea. But just as an example, one thing I want to do. So. I'd say Counter-Strike is a, it's a tactical shooter. We could compare it to, you know, it's primarily a PC game. We could compare it to Call of Duty, which is a more arcade-y. It still has a, has, a, has a big league and professional plays and so on. But I'd say that it's more of an arcade-y action, whereas Counter-Strike's a bit more serious. There was one release of Call of Duty that had dogs in it. So you could send a dog to attack someone or something. So one thing I want to do is, um, should Counter-Strike have dogs in it. Why don't we find out by going to a police dog training thing? And then I'm going to, or maybe I'll nominate someone, but I think I probably should do it myself. Stand in one of those suits where the dog jumps on your arm and so on. I've gone to one of the places and the guy's taking me on a tour and showing me the different ways they train a dog and so on. And he understands that I'm not like a troll and it's, you know, it's a proper thing. But that is something, for example, that's like super engaging content that could be part of a show. Um, and you know, that's another way you can engage. Like for example, when we did the TBS show, E-League, Arby's had dedicated adverts for like, when, when we would throw to break and so on, it would always be an Arby's advert. And what they did is they would have their burger on a plinth and then they would blast a burger with a high caliber rifle. And in slow motion, you're just basically seeing the burger exploding on the screen as the, the voiceover guy is talking and it's kind of tongue in cheek. But that's how they engaged the audience. That's they fun. Did, that's yeah, fun. it's awesome because they did something specific and relevant 
to the audience as opposed to just a general thing that you so could do apply So do you want to shoot a watch? Do you want to explode? I, got, I know the people with the high-speed cameras out here, so we could film it great. I don't want to shoot to watch, but I have <laughs> I have shot a car with an anti-tank gun while wearing my Hulk. Was it thrilling? Uh, it was it was crazy. The the percussion of my chest I was not expecting. It was. W- where did you get to do this? Because I know it was like crazy. it was in Texas. Like, you can do anything okay, in Texas. Of course, of course. <laughs> I was like, it's probably in America, probably in like you know Nevada or Texas or something like that. Yeah, we did that. We drove. So we went there. We did a series where we compared how guns in the game sound in real life because in in the game you have to tweak the sounds to all be different so you can identify what someone is is firing what someone is throwing etc so we did that then we 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 had a, a a stupid series which that dog thing will be part of so one of them was should we put anti-tank guns in the game why don't we find out by shooting something with an anti-tank gun we did the same thing with tanks and we drove a, a chieftain tank over a car we used a vietnam era flamethrower which was banned by the geneva convention of course you can use it in texas um so we did another one should flamethrowers be in the game why don't we use this vietnam era flamethrower that was terrifying i must say but uh yeah i did all, i did all of those wearing wearing a submariner <laughs> so not that i mentioned it in the video but you know again it's easy engagement i remember years ago i was at a shooting range with a buddy and i was i just took a picture because i was wearing a g-shock and i was like hey i think this is the good the right watch to wear you know, at a shooting range and things like that. And like the amount of like anti-gun hate that was received from the sort of watch community audience actually kind of surprised me because there's like a ton of uh, gun-loving like watch people, like a ton, a ton. Um, and I just, it sort of brings me to this sort of interesting and delicate area that watch brands have. And this, I guess, maybe our last topic. It's how to deal with the trolls. Right, because these these people at the brands are are quite conservative. Uh, their ego is in it. They are so afraid of negativity. For example, you know, just on on the blog to watch articles over the years, one of our biggest issues is you know, oh Ariel, I, I know there's you know eight of the comments are, are are good, but the two bad ones, I have a real issue with that. What do we do about it? Like their their capacity to sort of brush off the sort of trolling and commentary, which is normal online. Uh, it's low. They're not really good at it. What is some advice you can give to the people that are the you know the more sensitive marketing people that you know that just truly want to do best for their brand? But I feel that that a fundamental step into this is you're going to be part of a giant public conversation. Not everyone's going to like you, and that's okay. Just just forget about it. Yeah, you're if whenever you're putting yourself out there you simply aren't going to be able to please everyone, and that's something that you have to accept. Um, at the same time, I think you can always focus on doing things in a in a palatable way. So again, if we look at how how Gucci came into the space, their their academy is for is for the the Counter Strike game. They they are here to help us nurture players and offer them a chance to make a, a full career for themselves. So so it's about doing things in a palatable fashion. Like for example, when we've done videos with guns, it's not about ooh, guns, you know, look at all this damage or whatever. Like it's it's done done in a palatable way. Like how does this sound? It's, it, we're doing it in a, an early way. How does it sound versus in the game? Like I I um spend a lot of days I'm part of a pistol and rifle club where we do we do target shooting. Um so for example, I have an air pistol which I do 10 meter target shooting with which one of the guys there does at Olympics and so on. And we don't, you know, we're not like hunters. We don't shoot animals or, or anything like that. 
We do practical shotgun where we're shooting lead targets as fast as possible um, and, and different things with rifles, so, which is also target shooting. So it's about, it's about doing things in a, in a palatable way. It's not necessarily... Um, like if we do things with guns, it's not glorification or we're not using them in, a, in an irresponsible way. It's, it's in, a, in a way where you know, we're not, we're not, no, no one's getting harmed or anything like that. So I think it's, it's just about doing things, understanding what's palatable and what's the right way to do something. But again, if you look at the space, you've got people like Red Bull, Gucci involved, like they're, they're involved for a reason. They, they have all the same risks as well. Um, so yeah, you, you have to be, I mean, the, the, they haven't really had, they don't really get blowback in the space. But again, there's always going to be someone who's going to co complain about something. And that's just part of being in the public eye, really. So it just comes with the territory. So how, how do you, so more, more specifically, and again, this is because it, it is such an issue with the watch industry and I want them to get over it. What is your recommendation for emotionally how to ignore it? And in what circumstances should you respond? And in what circumstances should you pretend like it's not even happening? Well, I suppose it depends on the implementation. So, for example, if you're if you're do, if you were doing something, if a watch brand was doing something in partnership with us, like, like let's say we we released something, if someone didn't understand something correctly, I mean, it partly depends on the way they're asking these questions. Like, if people are just arguing amongst each other, then you can kind of leave them to it. But if I don't know if you receive an email and somebody's asking, I don't know about safety or something, then you know you shouldn't be afraid of replying if you've if you've prepared properly and you're you're making sure you're doing things in a palatable palatable fashion then it, it shouldn't be something to fear but again i think the key thing is that you shouldn't try to change the opinion of everybody in the, on the internet because that doesn't really work that way and not everybody wants that or is willing to change their opinion even if their opinion doesn't make any sense even if you can objectively show that their opinion is is incorrect or false it's just the nature of the internet you just have to let people be really so again you shouldn't you shouldn't be afraid of the internet because that's just the way it is there's just there's always going to be at that percentage of people and maybe they've had a bad day and they don't want to agree with anybody today and that's that's okay it's going to leave them be and if your brand happens to be at the butt at their angry stick for whatever reason get over it because the people reading that take it with an unbelievable grain of salt yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are there are some like watch websites where no matter what is posted, if it's like a popular brand, it's going to be negativity in the comments, regardless. Almost, almost as if it's, it's an offense. Like, like if uh, if like a Hadinki makes a post about a Rolex watch, let's say they make a new release, someone's going to be mad that they're posting about Rolex and not something else, you know. And it's like their job, and it's just like you just have to let those people be, as an example. So it's just you can't you can't please everyone. Like the sooner. The sooner one can accept that, the sooner they can get down to doing some really cool stuff. Now, I think this was a fantastic discussion, James. I want to thank you so much. Where can people learn more about you, follow you? What do you want to plug? Uh, my name is James Bardolf, so you can look that up and you'll find me in quick succession. Um, I, I don't really want to plug anything. I just, I just want, you know, like for me, I, you know, I spend a lot of time looking at watch stuff and I just want... Because I feel like the demographic is a no-brainer for watches, for streetwear. I just want these things to mesh more and people to, to be doing things, whether it's us or elsewhere. I will say, um, actually, I should mention this. So Macron, the leader of France, posted a video this week talking about how the next Counter-Strike Major is going to be in France, for example. So 
if anyone's got a problem with the space, they can just link them to that video. We've we've had um, the is it Prime Minister of Denmark? I think it's Prime Minister. He's turned up at some events that have been at at Denmark, and because it's a big country where a lot of people are doing it for a living, and there's a a thriving ecosystem, and he's turned up at the events and you know encouraged people and so on. And I wouldn't be surprised if Macron does the same thing next year. But he. He, that's cool he posted I'll, I'll send you a link to it he posted Counter-Strike uh, is a fun game to watch like it's 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 very exhilarating it's 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 hard as hell to play to be good it's unbelievable like I, I, I get motion sickness doing stuff like that but it's really fun to watch it's one of the easiest ones to understand which is which is very important you, you clearly understand what is what is happening we were doing an event for TBS in Boston where I was waving at the security because I needed water and he was moving his head out of the way of my arm to watch the action because people were going crazy. <laughs> and I, I didn't even mind that. That was, that was pretty cool. So it, it is one of the, uh, the best spectacles in the space, for sure. Thank you so much. This has been the Superlative Podcast with my guest, Mr. James Bardolph. James, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com. <laughs>